Welcome to SLU Law Summation, presenting brief looks at legal matters that matter to you by St. Louis University School of Law, located in the heart of downtown St. Louis. The alcohol industry is one of the most highly regulated industries in the United States. With the advent of the large conglomerates and the explosion of microbreweries and craft distilleries, the industry is ever-changing. I'm Maria Sakalis, your new host for SLU Law Summations. Today, we are joined by Professor Gary Rutledge. Gary joined SLU Law after serving as Vice President and Zone General Counsel in the North American Zone for Anheuser-Busch InBev. He currently teaches a course at SLU Law on alcohol regulation. Thank you for joining us, Gary. Thank you, Maria. It's my pleasure to be here. So as we mentioned, the alcohol industry is very regulated. Have there been any challenging regulatory issues? Um, I have to say, in my 18 years of working in the industry with Anheuser-Busch, that um, every year was challenging from a regulatory standpoint. As you mentioned in the lead-in, it is a very highly regulated industry. And um, I think what you're looking at is a, a series of laws and regulations, whether it's at a federal level, a state level, or a local level, that whenever you're doing things in the industry, uh, whether it's innovations, whether it's acquisitions, um, you really have to check and make sure that you're in compliance with all of those various laws and regulations. I think, you know, if we're looking at today, and again, I've been away from Anheuser-Busch for two and a half years now, so I tried to stay relevant and current on the industry, but things have happened and it, it happens very quickly in the industry that I wouldn't be up to speed on the latest developments. But I know that um, if we're looking at something that probably I would say is going on today is the whole issue of e-commerce. And it's what you're doing with things like Amazon, companies like Amazon mm -hmm. and buying Whole Foods because you know in the alcohol industry, it's a three-tier system traditionally and historically where you've got producers or manufacturers, you've got that level, you've got the distributor wholesaler level, and you've got the retailer level. And that three-tier system has been you know, in place since prohibition, and it's the 21st Amendment, repealing prohibition. And what you're ending up with now is you know, 21st century, you've got e-commerce, you've got things that I think people who passed the laws and, and constitutional amendments never really envisioned. So is, does it remain a strictly three-tier system, or do you bow to e-commerce? Are there adjustments you can make um, where Amazon can participate as a distributor and a retailer? Mm -hmm. So I think those are, those are some of the current issues that may be running into conflicts or at least up against some of the regulatory constraints in the industry. Interesting. From your experience, what are some of the issues that arise specifically during acquisitions or distribution deals? Well, um, you know, over the years, we obviously did uh, many acquisitions. Uh, we did acquisitions at the wholesaler level, where some states, uh, we just talked about the three-tier system mm -hmm. uh, with, with manufacturer, wholesaler, retailer. Some states allow the manufacturer to also participate and be a wholesaler in the state, uh, states like California. So where it would make sense, Anheuser-Busch would acquire a wholesaler in a state like California and participate in both levels. Now, when they participate in the wholesaler level, 
they still are a member of that tier. So they act as a wholesaler, not as the manufacturer. Mm -hmm. So there were acquisitions with wholesalers. And then, as you know, AB was part of the, the acquisition by InBev back in 2008, which obviously we participated in. And then we've seen since then the Anheuser-Busch InBev Modelo acquisition, and we've seen the Anheuser-Busch InBev SAB acquisition just recently. Um, so quite a few uh, acquisitions uh, at the distributor level. Really um, what you're looking at is where's the, what's the location, what's the size, what, what are the synergies that, that we can obtain in, in doing a deal like this? Does it make sense? From a legal standpoint, you're really looking at, well, are there regulatory constraints with regard to HSR filings, antitrust filings? Is it that size of a deal that we would have to do something like that? Um, nowadays, uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev is under a consent decree where you, know, you may have to go to the Justice Department to get approval to do a deal. Um, so you know, there are requirements there now that, that are in place that weren't in the past. Uh, licensing. So you're going to want to walk into a, a wholesaler and make sure that you're licensed to do business and that you can start day one. So there's always licensing issues um, at a local, local level. You want to make sure that the local uh, alcohol beverage commission is signed off on it. So really just a, a lot of, of checks to make sure once you're closed that you can operate. And obviously there are issues with the workforce. Um, a good workforce, they have to comply with your policies. Anheuser-Busch has a, a very strong um, no drug use policy. So whenever we'd acquire a wholesaler, uh, every employee before becoming an employee of Anheuser-Busch would have to go undergo um, drug testing. Uh, and, and sometimes people would not be able to be hired for that. Yeah. You'd also look at your senior management and um, how many of those do you want to keep, if any, and mm -hmm. make sure you had arrangements to do that. So, Yeah, that's really interesting. And that can kind of dovetail into our next question about these mega mergers that we're seeing with Anheuser-Busch and InBev back in 08 that you mentioned, and then just last year with ABI and um, SAB Miller. Um, can you comment on why we're seeing some of these huge mergers? Is this kind of a way to compete with the craft breweries that are springing up everywhere or are these other reasons are there other reasons behind this and how do these mergers affect the culture of the of the brewery within its community kind of mentioned workforce issues will arise what about other issues such as capacity to contribute to their local community. So, for example, Anheuser-Busch's capacity to contribute to the St. Louis region. I know that's something that's really big for AB. Um, and can you kind of talk about what those mergers mean? Wow, that's a list. <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try and remember them, but remind me if I don't answer all of them. Um, let's start with the first one, I think, is, is why are these happening? Um, and and I, I think it's, it's just the business case. So you look at each case individually, I think there are reasons to do each, each of the deals. And if it's Anheuser-Busch InBev, I think part, part of InBev's thinking was access to the U.S. market. So while they mm -hmm. had it with some of their brands, like Stella, Bex, Labatt's, um, they didn't really have the wholesaler network that Anheuser-Busch had, and they didn't have the Budweiser and the Budweiser brands mm -hmm. that Anheuser-Busch had. So for them, it made a lot of sense from, from a business standpoint to do that deal. I think. You know, if you look at Modelo, there are different reasons for doing that deal. Anheuser-Busch, prior to the acquisition by InBev, 
owned 50 percent of, of Grupo Modelo but, but did not own a controlling share. Um, and I think anyone who's looking at, at a business long term, it's, well, we own half of the business, we don't control it, let's go ahead and acquire the other 50 percent. So that, that made sense because you were already, you know, part of that business. Um, I think then if you look at, uh, obviously I wasn't there, but Anheuser-Busch, InBev, and SAB, um, it, I don't think it was a threat by craft brewers or by Miller Coors. I think if you're looking at it, it's, it's access to developing markets. So the, while you know, the, Anheuser-Busch made sense for InBev with the U.S. market, it, it, it still is a developed market. And I mm-hmm. think what, what AB InBev and SAB gives, the, the combined entity, is access to markets where AB InBev didn't play well. So there really wasn't, I mean, other than, you know, the Miller course here in the U.S., which was dealt with regulatorily uh, and divestiture um, the, for distribution rights, uh, they didn't really overlap in a lot of other places to, a, ser- to a, a significant extent where there's future growth in the market. Okay. Yeah. And then I think um, an answer to, you know, your other questions, I, I there's always um, challenges putting companies together. I think certainly the leaders at AB InBev are very good at it. They've done it for a very long time. Um, and when, for example, we, Anheuser-Busch and InBev came together, it was, it was not painless, but there was a process in place. It made sense. We were able to execute quickly. Um, Anytime you have, you know, a combination of companies, you're going to look at synergies. There's necessarily going to be some workforce reduction, which there was at Anheuser-Busch. Uh, you try to make that as painless as possible and take mm-hmm. care of people. Uh, you also try and not, you know, lose the commitments that a local company may have had to the city of St. Louis, which we also tried to do. Um, I know there was some criticism for that along the way, but um, certainly there was an effort to maintain mm-hmm. that commitment and, you know, we can look out the windows here and look down at the Budweiser sign, and it's still running down there. It's still there and still making a lot of beer and employing a lot of people. So, you know, we feel good about that. Uh, but I think, again, each, each deal that's done, it's how do you bring the cultures together. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, and I, I don't know as much about the ABMBEV-SAB deal, but when you brought ABMBEV together, certainly the MBEV folks and leadership had the, the expertise in the financial side, the cost side, and I'm not discounting their beer expertise, but I think what, what they saw and took of the best from Anheuser-Busch was the quality, the beer making, the corporate social responsibility, the hardworking attitude and success and never say quit of the um, Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch employees. So I think you put the two companies together, and if you do it right, the combination should be much stronger, and I felt like it was with Anheuser-Busch InBev. So you're not just coming in and taking over the company. You're coming in and saying, we love this about you. We've seen it from the outside. We love this. Teach us how to do this better, and then take that out to the broader company, mm-hmm. which I think was, was very effective, at least with the Anheuser-Busch InBev sure. merger. Kind of an inverse question next. So what happens when someone who is an employee of – a big beer corporation such as Anheuser-Busch InBev then takes off and starts his or her own brewery. What are some of the issues there? Are there any type of creative licensing issues that come up? Um, 
because I know that's not uncommon in the beer industry. No, it's not, and, and uh, it's, a, it's a great question. And actually, um, we at Anheuser-Busch, actually an Anheuser-Busch InBev, took pride in great people who moved on and did great things on their own because that's a reflection on the company mm -hmm. and what great people they trained and what great people we gave other opportunities to, even if it was outside the company. So we never looked at it as, gee, you know, they're, they're doing well and, I, you know, why are they doing so well? It wasn't that. It was, you know, because if they do well and craft beer did well, that kind of raises the halo for all of beer and it makes all of us look good. So we want the industry to look good. Mm -hmm. um, so firstly with that, um, straight from, you know, the lawyer standpoint and an employee standpoint, uh, we, we had certainly at our uh, disposal the opportunity to negotiate non-compete agreements. And at times there were, you know, we would do that. But again, um, those would, would have limitation periods. So you may have a year, 18 months, two years on a non-compete. And after that, the person is free to go do whatever they want. Um, now, we also had confidentiality agreements that, that um, all employees were bound by, that they couldn't take proprietary information, confidential information within the company. Uh, and take that somewhere else and use it. Did it ever become an issue for me? I think maybe on two occasions, I sent letters to um, an, a former employee and uh, the new employer just advising them that they were subject to this agreement and to not share anything and never had to do anything beyond that. So it really, while you think it may have been an issue, it, it at least personally never, never became an issue for, for me. So speaking of craft breweries now and these smaller microbreweries, um, what role has AB played in the craft brewery scene across the country as the beer markets kind of change? Um, how has Anheuser-Busch changed and evolved with that? It's interesting. I, I, this is um, just me saying this, and certainly nobody at a management level, but it, it's almost if you can't beat them, join them. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, we, Anheuser-Busch, uh, tried to be craft. Uh, we came up with things, and I think that, you know, there are brands like Shock Top that was intended to compete with the craft movement, and I think still does very well. Mm -hmm. But there were other things that didn't compete so well, because the bottom line is Anheuser-Busch is, is not a craft brewer. I mean, I think we make better beer than a lot of the craft guys. Um, but... Um, we just don't have the credentials, what, what the consumers are looking for with a craft beer. Mm -hmm. So after, I think, trying to do it on our own, um, what, what you see recently, and it actually started not so recently, in 2011, Anheuser-Busch uh, bought Goose Island. So going back to 2011, this was, you know, we really need to learn about this industry. We really need to learn about that, that being the craft industry how they're doing it, what they're doing it, they're making great beer, how can we help that, how can we participate in that? So I think doing, buying Goose Island and then doing that well and watching Goose Island prosper under the umbrella of Anheuser-Busch InBev uh, gave us the opportunity then to, to go out and explore other craft opportunities uh, in other markets where it made sense. And mm -hmm. I think you've seen over the past few years, not just Anheuser-Busch InBev, but, you know, Miller Coors and others now get into acquiring craft brewers and, and trying to be part of that scene mm -hmm. by actually being the craft brewer. 
and I think that you know the secret there and the challenge there is how do you be big beer and do craft beer at the same time and so you can't you can't destroy the brand mm -hmm. you have to have it have its own identity you can't go you may have synergies from you know a back office standpoint with accounting but you really I think just need to let these people keep doing what they're doing and making their great craft beer sure our last question will kind of again dovetail off of that um there have been in recent months and years conflicts arising more and more between these local craft breweries and their distributors and retailers at the bar or restaurant or store level um, because the breweries are selling beer in their own tasting rooms without having to pay for a liquor license. So this creates competition between the breweries and then their own distributors. Um, so we have seen some lobbying efforts arise with Anheuser-Busch or big mega brewers um, who don't necessarily even need tasting rooms to make money for their corporations, lobbying for laws that, um, that reduce the amount of alcohol these local breweries can sell without getting a license um, and try to curb that influence a little bit. So do you think these lobbying efforts are ultimately heading anywhere in particular? Do you think that we're going to see some sort of broad national consensus on this issue, or will it vary from state to state depending on the culture of the state? I'm not volunteering, but now you need a whole new segment on the political side of the beer industry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's really what we're talking about here. And, and that's a current issue it's going on and i don't think you'll see and the short answer answer is i don't think there's going to be any nationwide fix to this um, most of the time it's done like a lot of things at a state-by-state -state level um, but it's not unusual to see different members of the alcohol segment team up with various members depending on what the issue is there were times when beer may team up with alcohol, uh, hard liquor, and wine against the wholesalers. Mm -hmm. uh, there may be time that all of alcohol teams up together against a tax increase. So you've got what we call stakeholders, where everybody has an interest in something, mm -hmm. and you, you need to be effective and good at working with all the different stakeholders and sometimes being their partner on a certain issue and sometimes being their opponent on a certain issue, but being able to come in and out of those agreements and, and work with people sometimes on both sides of the aisle. I mean, on this one, you've got, um, you know, retailers arguably uh, who are being put out by the craft brewers who are selling their own beer and, you know, big beer who would rather not have craft beer out there. So it would make sense for the two of them team together. Mm -hmm and try and put some restrictions or at least some cost on the craft brewers for doing this. But I'll tell you recently, you know, I, the craft brewers have um, a very effective lobbying system and, and you know, it makes a lot of sense from their standpoint. Entrepreneurs, uh, local people, uh, local businesses. So I, they, have, they have a pretty good argument on the craft side too. How expensive is alcohol licensing for a brewery to have to buy it and to distribute their own products? 
Um, it it can be relatively expensive, mm-hmm. and, it, and it, it, a lot of it is in, is in the startup cost. So, mm-hmm. are you going to brew your own beer? And if you're going to be, I think, a credible craft brewer, you better be brewing your own and not subcontracting it. I'm probably offend, offending somebody out there who's contracting their brews, but I think you know it, it, it's certainly more authentic if I'm sitting there having a, a beer and I'm looking at the the tanks behind it where the stuff is being made. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, but that's a lot of startup cost. And people who start the businesses may not have the money to do it, and they'll subcontract it to begin with. So it, it's a lot of startup cost. Um, licensing technically is not all that expensive, but I think you know putting the money in initially, raw materials, very expensive. And, and if you want to use the best, you know you're going to pay a lot. And as more breweries come on, they become more scarce. Mm-hmm. So the smaller guys have a tougher time finding good quality agree- uh, ingredients without paying a high price for it. So those are the kind of the, the startup costs, I would say. Okay. Well, this was a fascinating look at some of the issues involved in alcohol regulation and craft breweries. We are so lucky to have Professor Gary Rutledge with us. Thank you for joining us again, Gary. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for SLU Law Summations, produced by St. Louis University School of Law. Thank you.